crypto is inherently like going to have to do with financializing assets because it's all about digital property ownership and digital property ownership rights. And so like a lot of that has been hampered because we haven't had the regulatory environment that has provided, you know, clarity and and proper guidance, I think on a on a global basis, but that's starting to change. Hey listeners, if you enjoyed today's episode, don't forget to subscribe and leave us a review on your favorite podcast platform. Your support helps us reach more listeners and bring you more exciting content in the future. Hello, and welcome to The Crypto Brief, a podcast from Fidelity Center for Applied Technology. Every week we get together to discuss current events and trends in blockchain technology, tokenization, DeFi, NFTs, mining, and related aspects of the crypto ecosystem. I'm your co-host, Ryan Stubbe, Director of Bitcoin Mining, and I'm joined by Jason Ward, Head of the Blockchain Incubator, Parth Gargava, Product Architect with Fidelity Labs, and Jack Newrider, Research Associate with Avon Ventures. Before we begin, just a friendly reminder that this discussion is for educational purposes only and should not be viewed as investment advice or a recommendation for any security or asset. The views expressed are those of the co-hosts and not necessarily those of Fidelity Investments or its affiliates. As we all know, crypto as an asset class is highly volatile, can become illiquid at any time, and is only for those investors with a high risk tolerance. Let's dive into what's been happening recently. Hey, guys. Hey, welcome to December. Yeah, I know. I can't believe I can't believe we're here. It's like I was reflecting over the weekend. I'm like, oh my god, so much has happened this year. <laughs> Our uh, the uh, the upcoming uh, recap episode that we do for 2023 is going to require quite a bit of prep. That's for sure. Definitely, a lot of filtering to be done. Yeah, exactly, exactly. So really excited for today's episode. We're gonna we're gonna do something a little bit different. Um, normally, it's just the audience kind of listening to us chirp on around uh, the happenings of the ecosystem and what our thoughts are. But we um, we decided to take the opportunity to ask some questions of the audience, just to kind of get a sense of what's important to them and what they're kind of thinking about. And, you know, again, we'll, we'll take that we'll take this opportunity to provide our perspective on some of the questions that we've that we've received. So I'm, I'm, I'm not going to hold back. I'm going to start with, um, you know, a relatively kind of large question um, that I think we could take in a couple of different directions. And we did receive a few questions around this. Um, and that is, you know, around the dominance of Ethereum when we think about the overall crypto market, right? So 2022 was a big year for Ethereum, uh, switching to proof of stake, right? Um, and we've seen 2023 be a pretty active year in terms of projects building on top of Ethereum. Of course, the development backlog or the development roadmap for, you know, Ethereum is, is pretty robust and we're continuing to see upgrades come out. But the question really is, you know, how do we, how do we see the role of Ethereum with respect to some of the other protocols out there evolve, you know, in the coming year. Any thoughts kind of on that? And, and I think we can kind of tie that into maybe some of the other projects that, you know, maybe are, if you want to call it competing uh, with Ethereum or, or trying to solve some of the problems around, you know, that, that we've experienced with Ethereum. I, I think it's going to be an interesting discussion, but I did do a quick scan of a tool called Crypto Market Cap which conveniently has uh, both Bitcoin and Ethereum dominance figures at the top of the page. So uh, as of the time of recording, Bitcoin has a dominance of a little over 53%, with Ethereum the second most dominant token in terms of market cap, being uh, around 174 17.5%. So it is interesting to talk about Ethereum dominance. What I thought about was 
not just the the relevant performance or or market cap compared to Bitcoin, but what about those other smart contract platforms that are probably more in line with the use cases and the, and the purposes that we see Ethereum being deployed for? So I sort of thought about it that way. So, you know, one thing I, I did also check was what is the total value locked on Ethereum compared to the rest of the DeFi market as reported by DeFi Llama? And they're reporting about a 68% dominance for Ethereum in, in TVL of DeFi. So, you know, I, I look at that and say, wow, that's, that's really interesting. But Jack, there's some up and comers, uh, you know, as well as some, I'll call them um, unproven chains that may have zombie tokens, but there's some real other uh, competition arising in, in the ecosystem, right? Yeah, definitely. I mean, and you point out, I think the fair comparison for Ethereum and ETH dominance is amongst smart contract layer ones. And and what we've seen is like recently, a lot of people are talking about Solana over the past you know handful of months. And we even have, have done so ourselves as we're just trying to sort of stay abreast of what everybody's talking about in the market um, with Firedancer and some other upgrades coming uh, within the Solana ecosystem, like they've taken you know, a different uh, design architecture to solving for this problem of, I mean, what is what is any blockchain solving for ultimately? The ability to move digitally native assets and non-digitally native assets in a more transparent, efficient, accessible way. Um, and Ethereum and Solana have different approaches to mainly to scalability, right? And what we're seeing right now is in recent months, a little bit of traction amongst the alternative sort of more up and comer, um, as opposed to what, you know, what Ethereum has launched. And, and what I would say is it's just, it's still so early to know ultimately how the smart contract space plays out because you didn't have the advent of smart contracts until 2015 with Ethereum. And you didn't have like the major DeFi applications that exist on Ethereum until the 2018 to 2020 time period. So you could argue that we're anywhere between like five to eight years into the life cycle of like smart contract and decentralized applications and this, you know, just this sort of idea. And like, we're just starting to see some of the core primitives and applications that that could happen. Um, But we still don't have the regulatory environment to bring, you know, traditional assets onto some of these chains. And if I think of like Bitcoin as the analog, which... It's completely separate in my view, right? Where it makes certain trade-offs and it, it doesn't really enable smart contracts in the in the sense that Ethereum and Solana do. Um, but I would argue we didn't really know what Ethereum was until the block size wars when we had the hard fork of Bitcoin Cash, because there was still a discussion of is Bitcoin prominently about decentralization and store of value? So like kind of like this idea of digital gold and trying to be more a store of value that nobody can change the rules and we keep the blocks smaller, therefore we can have more node operators and greater decentralization. Or there was another camp, which ultimately led to the the hard fork of Bitcoin Cash, which was, no, this is about payments, peer-to-peer electronic digital cash, like the first line of Satoshi's white paper. And ultimately store of value won out, right? Because we had the hard fork and then Bitcoin Cash, you know, on a a dominance, you know, relative basis is, is, I think less than 1% the size of Bitcoin's market cap. And so like that story played out from Bitcoin's launch in 2009 until 2017. So that took eight years. And now we're at this eight years into smart contracts and decentralized applications. I think you could argue even less than eight years. And we still don't have all of the answers there. But you know, Ethereum clearly has, you know, a, a larger, you know, TVL sort of head start and, you know, greater mindshare in terms of developers. But there are other implementations and applications that are making trade-offs. Yeah. 
So Jack, first of all, love the fact that you found a way to weave in the block size wars. Like, and for anybody who is new to the crypto market space or Bitcoin in particular, definitely recommend learning about what happened in that time frame because it was a very, very important part of not just the narrative, but the evolution of this entire ecosystem. So thinking about how does the community drive decision-making and what happens when a chain forks, which is something that, let's be honest, some of these smart contract chains that are out there competing with Ethereum actually have shared DNA and they are in fact forks of Ethereum. But one of the other things I, I wanted to uh, sort of jump on that, that you mentioned was the applications and what is actually making this chain or these competitive chains useful. And I can't help but think about the DeFi summer and how we started seeing a, a rise of stable coins and use in DeFi, whether through liquidity pools or otherwise. And, and you talked about the Bitcoin case being around peer-to-peer -peer payments. I, I've seen some stats recently, and I, and I would recommend people go back and listen to the episode we did with Nick Carter. Just talk about the velocity of transactions using stable coins for payments now. And even though the actual number or the market value outstanding has declined, the actual use has increased. And uh, I was listening to uh, the Castle Island on the Brink podcast the other day, and, and they were talking about how they think perhaps uh, the the actual market cap has bottomed. Now we can't predict, nor would, would they, but point being the utilization is increasing, therefore showing better value of the, the use case itself. Yeah, no, I, I think it's it's a really interesting point. And I think, Jack, your comments resonated with me in that, you know, we've had, you know, particularly in the context of Bitcoin, right? Like I think Bitcoin has um, kind of done a pretty good job digging a moat around itself, right? With respect to how, how people view that network and view that asset, right? And it's, you know, by, you know, certainly by current standards, you know, more analog right um and you know those those attributes kind of suit the perceived value proposition well right and when you think about the value proposition of ethereum and now some of the newer kind of networks i think the uh differences you know while i would say somewhat clear um the it, from technologically speaking are 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 there um, from an application standpoint in terms of who chooses to build on top of what i think there's still a lot to be determined you know just just with kind of where the market is going to basically move adoption on these different on these different protocols yeah and not to make the conversation about bitcoin but with bitcoin it's more straightforward right uh, i think you could argue whether it was intentional or not that that like bitcoin was created to kind of solve a problem like explicitly, whereas the problem that other networks are solving is more abstract, right? There's a there's a solution or there's a, a system or an architecture of, of software that now, like in large part for these you know smart contract L1s are trying to kind of figure out what are the problems that we can solve with this technology, right? Versus, and maybe that, you know, maybe I'm being too kind to Bitcoin and saying that like, oh yeah, we perfectly knew it was going to try to be a store of value and try to be a digital gold. But like, to me, it's more, a little more straightforward um, with everything outside of Bitcoin, right? Ethereum and Solana, like there is real competition. I think there is a greater likelihood that, you know, a vast majority of these smart contract L1s will be worthless or, or close to it. But there, you know, there's a very 
decent likelihood in my view anyways that you know there could be a handful of these that are super useful and that do have implications for you know large traditional technology businesses and for financial markets and other ways that bitcoin simply can't solve well jack it comes back to the blockchain trilemma yeah, right 100 you know, you've got security decentralization and throughput and it's and it's that spectrum jason where i think people are starting to pause and ask the question of where does value accrue on it and i even remember if we go back like two years ago, we were having this conversation with Miles, which is this idea that like Bitcoin makes trade-offs, right? Away from scalability and complexity, but it allows it to be more decentralized. And now if you look at the exact opposite end of the spectrum, that's where Solana sits, right? Which is, you know, it still has aspects of decentralization for sure. I don't want to like cut it short by any means, but like it's, it's clearly more centralized than something like Bitcoin. And it, and Ethereum really sits in the middle of the two. And I think people are starting to ask the question of, well, is there value associated with you know, the network that's on the, the complete opposite side of the spectrum, especially if we're like bringing real world assets on chain, right? At the end of the day, if you bring real world assets into these environments, well, then the asset that is being represented on that chain is centralized in some form, right? If it's a piece of real estate, if it's the the rights to you know a, a security of of some form, like there is a government and there is a a body of law that stands in between that tokenized claim and your like actual real world ownership of it. And so at that point, do you really need something that's extremely decentralized because the claims that are being traded on top of it that are actually the valuable piece are are inherently centralized to some degree? And that's the whole argument around fit for purpose. And, and the fact of the matter is, it, it doesn't have to be an either or. Uh, in some cases, you may have the same asset transacted in different ways. And I'll just use stablecoin for the simplicity of it. You might see it used on a highly centralized chain. You might see it on a highly decentralized chain. What its use is, is to affect either a payment or a settlement or some type of collateralization. So it, it can work. But Jack, as you talk about the real world assets, and you know, we've had a lot of questions about the integration of traditional financial services and blockchain. And yeah, you you took you took the words right out of my mouth. I was about to I was about to take us in that direction. Yeah, right? so please do take us there. There's two two questions that I, I view as somewhat closely aligned, right? So the first question is around the incumbents, right? It's been a very active year, particularly as, you know, the crypto native companies have switched into stealth mode. You know, they're very much, you know, heads down in the bear market, off in their respective areas building, right? But we've seen some pretty big headlines come out of the major banks, a lot of the major financial institutions, um, that they're, you know, doing various things within the crypto and the digital assets space, right? And so the question really is, okay, if they're going to be more active in this space long term, what are what are the implications, um, you know, for the ecosystem and the industry as a whole? So that's the first part. Um, the second piece is, what do you think about what they're doing, right? Like, what's most exciting from a use case perspective? Um, and there's some overlap, certainly, of a lot of the announcements that we've seen this year. Um, and what has you the most excited about, you know, where people are building, whether they're incumbents or not in the space? And Jason, I know you're head of the blockchain incubator. You spend a lot of time thinking about blockchain use cases. Jack, you spend a lot of time talking to companies as a VC. So you, you both have pretty good line of sight into, you know, what people are doing and thinking about in the space. Yeah, I I would tell you sort of retro, I guess, retro perspective on this is telling because, you know, five, six years ago, everyone was, I'm doing something on blockchain. 
because it's changing the world. You say, well, why are you doing it on blockchain? Oh, I'll get funding. Again, what are you doing? I'm not sure yet, but it's going to be big. And it was just so draining because you had this lack of understanding of the application. And today you look and say, okay, although consortia still exist and people are learning and, and consortia were super valuable to helping people get started in learning, you've seen a maturity of different players in the space. And I'll say uh, crypto natives, as well as traditional financial services companies, you see a lot around tokenization and people say, well, why do I need to tokenize? Why would I want to tokenize? In some cases, you don't need to and you shouldn't want to. But when you think about some of the benefit, we see people trying to improve things like the velocity of transactions, uh, the ability to manage risk differently in aftermarket hours. So I could use a stable coin or a tokenized treasury to pledge as collateral and cover my risk overnight or do an off-cycle margin call to ask somebody to cover their exposure that I have to them. And, and that in and of itself is allowing for, I'll say, potential risk mitigation, risk reduction. It also accelerates the pace. And you think about the velocity of transactions. So in some ways, you could end up seeing some increased volatility because not every player has the same uh, capabilities to be able to transact in those off-market hours. So I think you'll see technologies come to the forefront where people are perhaps offering a platform as a service or white labeling different capabilities. But I think a lot about the application. And you know, we're not really talking about uh, tracking lettuce on blockchains right now, but it is still happening. Yeah. As exciting as it is, what we're talking about now are you know, things like the Monetary Authority of Singapore helping multiple different TradFi players come up with new ways to transact. And that's what's exciting to me is that we're we're getting better engagement with global regulators so that they better understand the application in traditional financial services. They understand the potential new avenues that could be realized through DeFi. But I think we've got a long road ahead of us. So I'm I'm thankful that there is that much engagement. And frankly, a lot of it goes below the radar and a lot of shops uh, are doing things that are not publicly known. And it's incredibly important, I'll call it road building, so that as we address some of these barriers to entry and we address some of the friction in the user experience, people will be better positioned to be able to take advantage of how the technology uh, both simplifies and uh, helps mitigate some of the risks that we see today. Yeah, Jason, just to double click on something that you're saying there. I think all like the entire space as a whole is all about digital property ownership, right? And those those rights to whatever the, the claim is. And the regulatory environment is so key to it because without progression in the regulatory environment globally, you can't like you're stuck only moving digitally native assets that are adequately decentralized. Right. That's the cap to what this is. But once you start to like have progressive legislation, things like Mika coming into place into effect in 2024 in the EU, like that's a major milestone that's coming that now you know, all of these large banks and, you know, TradFi institutions that exist in the EU start to have, you know, a, an increasingly clearer framework. And crypto is inherently like, going to have to do with financializing assets because it's all about digital property ownership and digital property ownership rights. 
And so like a lot of that has been hampered because we haven't had the regulatory environment that has provided, you know, clarity and, and proper guidance, I think on a, on a global basis, but that's starting to change. And I think that really does is like the key to unlocking like the ability for both traditional institutions to start using this stuff and for just people to build and not have to worry so much about what they're building and whether or not regulators are going to come after them or not. And what we've seen like on that front has actually, you know, proved out to be true, right? Like in areas where you do have these regulatory sandboxes, you you have a quite a bit of, you know, activity happening in the private sector, right? Um, you know, developing within these sandboxes. So it's, it's proven to be a pretty highly effective uh, framework for incubating the, the, you know, innovation kind of across these different these different sectors i think one thing jason that you mentioned um you know indirectly reminded me of, of something else which is i think in the last year you know as we think about the announcements of you know a lot of the big players moving into this space you know working on tokenization platforms working on crypto you know custody working on trading and execution you name it right it, it's usually that company and a group of other companies that are either in like natively in whatever space they're looking to get into um or are in you know the same industry right so the banks for example there's been a couple of announcements where you have multiple of the largest banks particularly in the US working on a initiatives together and that to me is really striking because i think previously like your your lettuce use case right it's one big behemoth working on something right and we've always said that when you think about things like asset tokenization and and trading and settlement on the blockchain you really need critical mass to be at that table and and adopting whatever standard it is you're looking to implement in order for it to make operational sense and to actually achieve kind of the 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 intended outcome of you know better faster cheaper right and so i think like you know when you pair that with starting to have at least uh, directionally more regulatory guidance in some places right i think you kind of start to have the makings of okay we might actually be be you know starting to gain some meaningful momentum on some of these use cases that we've spent a lot of time talking about um but, and still have you know relatively little um you know accomplished to date just again given how much excitement there are around some of these things yeah and right it, it, I, I agree with you and if you remember if I talk a lot about what are the attributes needed for success. And it was probably around 2016, 2017, when I just kept trying to ask those questions because you saw all these different groupings of entities coming together to work on something that make headlines, a little bit of progress and things would fizzle out. Right. So I, the formula I came up with is you need to have one, a minimally viable committed ecosystem. So to your point, groups of entities working together. Two, you needed to have interoperable, if not common technology. And that's a big thing that we're still working on, whether it be bridges or cross-chain communication protocols. I know people are interested in interoperability, but then you get into standards. You know, how do you actually get agreement around standards to be used and applied? Fourth was governance. And lastly, underpinning it all is an economic incentive. So you're seeing progress in the minimum viable ecosystems. You're seeing progress around governance and standards, uh, progress, albeit slow and at times bumpy around the interoperability components. But a lot of people view the economic incentive. And for some of these players, before it was about revenue in terms of new revenue. And now in some cases, it's about protecting their revenue base because of the potential disruption. So I was on a panel at a conference earlier this year, and I had another panelist decide to ask me, 
what I thought about the banks. And you know, and I, I had to sit there and remind the person that we as an industry are very reliant upon our banking relationships. Mm. And the banks, although they may be disrupted, they're very interested in and motivated to understand this technology and improve their operations so that they are able to uh, not be disrupted to the extent that they might be otherwise. Now, it goes back to what Jack was talking about, property rights and then government regulation. So it's a very complicated set of topics, but I, for one, am thankful that the there's progress being made Yeah, because you know taking the ostrich approach and sticking your head in the sand isn't going to do anybody any good. The consortia that people learn from are, are really important, but in the end, you're going to have to get that economic commitment, the technology commitment, and for our industry, uh, being the financial service industry, you need that regulatory engagement. So clear rules of the road and these sandboxes or even regulations like Mika in the EU, they're helping us uh, move down the path of progress. It's also like, I, I think you could argue that the, the financial space has been hard to disrupt because of the regulatory moats that exist, right? You necessarily and create this behaviors. barrier to entry for startups or newcomers that are trying to take a different approach or think about things differently from a technology perspective. And like, I, th I think we've said this a lot, but like traditional fintechs over the past, you know, 10 or 15, 20 years, sure, they've made like the user experience better and increased, you know, inclusivity of like trying to engage a, you know, a younger generation to, you know, start off uh you know down the right path financially etc and not to take anything away from things that fintech companies have done but a lot of times they've just changed kind of the user interface on the front end but not really disrupted the industry at its core and that is you know sort of left existing you know large uh, oligopolies that exist in the you know the banking and, and financial industry to just sort of be able to be relatively complacent and not be forced to innovate whereas digital assets necessarily was a disruptor because like ultimately there was nothing that regulators could do about it there was nothing that a singular government could do about it and people started using it and wanting access to it because for one reason or another they thought it was better than you know something that they were traditionally using and now we're at that sort of size now you know the market's uh you know one one and a half trillion you know in, in assets and you know starting to you know gain broader recognition globally. And now you're starting to see the regulatory environment has to shift around it. And banks are open to the idea of using it or, or figuring out how it can help their business. And, and Jack, you, you, you talk about, you know, what could be done about it. In some cases, regulators are actually trying to accelerate it. In other cases, they were slow to react to it. And the fact of the matter is we're here in 2023 and we're talking about uh, exchange traded products. And there are several approved around the globe, but you know, years ago, the whole point of people in the blockchain community, I'll say uh, Bitcoin community in particular, to give them the respect that they, I know they want to not be lumped in with the crypto market is the peer-to-peer, -peer, the censorship resistance. And here we are, we're taking that technology and it's not so much around the censorship resistance, it's about the verifiability. So we talk about trustless networks, we're actually talking about trust and verify. And for many of the new players or the traditional financial services, players who are making progress in the space, it's that better, faster, cheaper, and uh, also making it more transparent. But that comes with its own set of challenges because a lot of our industry is trying to um, avoid being front run on transactions. And 
you want to be able to verify it, which is why you, this rise of technology like zero knowledge proofs is really, really interesting or layer twos or the ability to uh, roll up transactions and affect the, the net sum as opposed to disclosing every single transaction in a, in a block. Yeah. All right. I need to take us in a much different direction because uh, a good problem, I suppose, is the questions are coming in much faster than we can answer them. So we're going in a different direction and we're also going to we're also going to time box our responses so that we can get through some of these questions. So the first uh, the next two questions, I should say, are are largely kind of current event based questions. So the first is around um, ETFs, ETPs, right? It's gotten a tremendous amount of airtime, you know, in the last six months, you know, we're, we're seeming that we're inching closer and closer to an approval out of the SEC, um, which I suspect is what um, inspired this question, um, which is, you know, beyond, you know, the Bitcoin and Ethereum ETP ETF, which we've heard a lot about. What are your thoughts on other types of pro digital assets products, right? We, you know, obviously we spent a lot of time talking about programmable money and automated finance and how we can kind of have, you know, much, you know, much more uh, frictionless transactions. Um, do you have any thoughts on, you know, what we might see beyond those kind of, you know, fairly standard, straightforward products of just holding one single asset? Yeah, I think you can overlay all different types of products, you know, on a long enough time horizon. But of course, I think with Bitcoin, it's it's quite clear that, you know, it's being viewed as a commodity, whereas, you know, the SEC, they're naming, you know, a number of tokens that are just beyond Bitcoin and Ethereum uh, in terms of like sort of market cap order rank of digital assets. Um, for, for some of these recent lawsuits that we've seen this year. And that means that, you know, it's we're gonna need regulatory clarity on those assets and how they're treated and who can custody them. Does, does it have to be a broker dealer because these are securities or is it something that doesn't exist yet because, you know, digital assets are, are new and, and different and you know, shouldn't maybe shouldn't be using, you know, laws that were created in the 1930s to apply to assets that exist on a decentralized internet infrastructure right like um so so like w i think we're still you know relatively it's like you know bitcoin and we could see potentially you know ethereum in these types of products and maybe you know there's already applications for products that mix the two or have strategies around you know when to hold bitcoin and when to hold cash relative to you know moving averages or whatever um but like Absolutely, we could see index-like products uh, that that hold crypto assets relative to market cap weighted, you know, traditional indices, you know, similar to the way traditional indices um, act. All those types of things and actively managed products. But I think the the major barrier there is we don't even know whether these assets are securities or not, and who can hold them. In, in Jack, I'll play devil's advocate for a second. What does it matter, right? If you structured a product as a security. And that security held both securities and digital assets that would be deemed commodities, then in theory, you could be okay because the wrapper around the product would be regulated as a security, yeah. I think. Now, again, I'm not a lawyer, but that's the the avenue that I would pursue is saying, all right, make it up. Hypothetically, I want a portfolio that gives me Bitcoin, Ethereum, the next X number of quote unquote digital assets and you know the Dow 30, a broad section of different exposures blended exposure as yeah. long as it's in a in a structure that is regulated i think i'd be okay yeah yeah no it's an it's an interesting question and i think again i think jack you kind of hit the nail on the head we need we need regular regulatory clarity around 
you know, the, the treatment of a lot of these assets before you can start thinking about, you know, more exotic wrapped products that hold, you know, hold these assets or build on top of, you know, some of these protocols, things like that. Um, okay. I think we'll close with um, a question that we got quite a few times um, and not surprising given the, given the activity that we've seen in the last two weeks. Um, and that is around the settlement um, that Binance had with the Department of Justice, um, as well as the, you know, of course, the CZ being part of that. Um, and the question really is, if I'm, if I'm reading between the lines here is, you know, what are the implications, now that we have this, this settlement, what are the implications for the ecosystem? Like, where do we go from here um so curious you know jason if you want to start curious to get your thoughts on this um as to where you see things going it it's an interesting question because i think you have to take a look at it objectively and following ftx a lot of people question where binance the world's largest exchange you know were they solvent one and you know they implemented a proof of reserve to try and help increase confidence um, two, there was a lot of question, well, didn't Binance try to buy out FTX and then walk away? So what's going on there? So, you know, people start asking questions about the motivation of, of, of Binance prior to the FTX uh, bankruptcy. But then you flash forward, the investigation with the DOJ had been going on for a very long time, long before the FTX bankruptcy. So I think on one hand, people need to be appreciative of what the Binance team had done to raise the accessibility and the visibility around digital assets. But I also think now with the settlement and the what seemed to be, I'll call it the, the lifting of a questionable cloud around the industry, I think the skies ahead are a little bit brighter. You know, a lot of people speculated about uh, the potential for uh, ETPs to be delayed regarding concerns of, of spot price manipulation. You know, people question: Would they be able to do that on Binance or otherwise? I I don't know. I think the fact of the matter is these are global assets that trade on exchanges that have uh, significant leverage opportunity as well. So it's not a particular exchange, but given that it's the world's largest exchange, and we've been able to see that it's it seems they've got enough cash to cover the the financial penalty. Uh, they continue to operate. The people who are operating that exchange now are, uh, I believe, former regulators. I think there's going to be some continued evaluation of the product that they will offer. There may be across the board, I'll say fewer questions around the bigger actors in the space. But generally speaking, I, I think it's going to be a net positive. I see a lot of reaction, uh, like I said, so it's kind of a, a bittersweet thing where people are appreciative of Binance, but they're also happy to see them be a step removed in order for the industry to progress. Yeah, I mean, I I don't know. I'm not fully convinced that the whole story has been written here, right? Like we just reached a supposed settlement uh, on Binance, but then you know, there's a, there's the implications of like, okay, well, what happens when regulators can see you know all of this transaction activity from you know, potentially other offshore entities that are moving funds, and it still seems like there's you know a handful of I don't want to say uh, necessarily bad actors, but it still seems like there's you know activity that regulators would not like to see happening on various exchanges. It's it's not just Binance, yeah. um, and 
in in addition, it'll be interesting to see how the market structure changes. Like we've seen, for instance, Coinbase launched like derivatives offerings and, you know, kind of made a push internationally throughout the course of this year. And like Coinbase, of course, being based in the United States and, you know, is generally accepted as a more like regulated uh, entity in the space. It'll be interesting to see how market share shifts because we saw, you know, with BitMEX, for instance, a handful of years ago, they got into trouble with regulators for similar like KYC AML type issues. And after the settlement, they more or less have faded into irrelevance as an exchange and everybody moved to different exchanges, right? But everybody moved to different sort of offshore, less regulated exchanges, right? Now that Binance is potentially reaching this settlement and going to be overseen by regulators, what happens, right? Do they maintain market share? Do they lose market share? And if they lose market share, do they lose it to other offshore unregulated exchanges because that's where the capital wants to flow that was using Binance? Or does it move to the Coinbase's and the the regulated you know, actors that are moving internationally. And I don't know the answer to that question, but I think it will be informative to, you know, whether crypto is progressing from a regulatory perspective and like can actually start to mature in, in some aspect and be brought into traditional finance or whether this is just kind of another chapter in an ongoing series of this. I think it's both, but you're asking the right questions. Yeah, I appreciate your cautionary tone, Jack, right? Because I think like, the market, crypto market is extremely reactive to news, both negative and positive, right? More, you know, I think in a lot of respects, uh, more than traditional markets. And so I do think it's worth noting that while this, you know, kind of, uh, Jason, I think to, to use your analogy, kind of lifts uh, one black cloud, there could be more, you know, storm clouds and coming in the sky, right? Um, and so I think, you know, it's about understanding kind of the overall landscape. Um, you know, again, there's the immediate relief that this settlement offers, um, you know, maybe kind of, kind of helps it, uh, ease a lot of the investor worry that we've seen around this issue, but it's far from over in terms of the implications. Yeah. I mean, I would, I would say I've been pleasantly surprised with like the fact that there hasn't been huge negative market implications yeah. thus far anyways from you know, some of this stuff playing out like i would i wouldn't have been surprised originally if you told me that we were going to see something similar to ftx play out and we didn't you know which is which is great for jack i was in the same camp as you but what i wonder and again i i don't know so it's just a question but i wonder will we see some tapering off in the long tail of assets that people were able to access uh, they still can access but if there are fewer players, as, as you said, if people do move to other exchanges for whatever reason, um, what will happen to that long tail? Yeah, if that liquidity starts to dry up, then you could start to see like, and and maybe that's for better, right? Maybe that, you know, you see a reduction in some of the speculative activity and chains that really aren't doing much. And, you know, you see a yeah. congregation of thought around yeah. networks that are actually you know, starting to make inroads to the real world and real applications that impact people's yeah, lives. Yeah. All right, guys, this was, this was a fun discussion. We need to do this more often. And based on the overwhelming number of questions um, that we got, I think we, we should do it more often. Um, so we really appreciate it. Uh, all of you who submitted questions, um, we'll try and address them in, in future sessions if we didn't get them, uh, get to them today. And um, Jason, Jack, thanks so much. This was a really great discussion. Um, and looking forward to welcoming Parth back next week. Um, I hope you have a great rest of your week, everyone, and we'll uh, talk to you soon. Thanks so much. Crypto as an asset class is highly volatile, can become illiquid at any time, and is for investors with a high risk tolerance. Crypto may also be more susceptible to market manipulation than securities.
Crypto is not insured by the Federal Deposit Insurance Corporation or the Securities Investor Protection Corporation. Investors in crypto do not benefit from the same regulatory protections applicable to registered securities. Past performance is no guarantee of future results. This podcast was produced by the Fidelity Center for Applied Technology, also known as FCAT. FCAT does not offer digital assets nor provide clearing or custody of such assets. It is for informational purposes only and is not intended to provide tax, legal, insurance, or investment advice and should not be construed as an offer to sell, a solicitation of an offer to buy, or a recommendation for any security or other asset by any Fidelity entity or third party. Views expressed are as of the date indicated, based on the information available at the time, and may change based on market or other conditions. Unless otherwise noted, the opinions provided are those of the authors and not necessarily those of Fidelity Investments or its affiliates. Fidelity does not assume any duty to update any of the information. Fidelity and any other third parties mentioned in the podcast are independent entities and are not affiliated. Mentioning them does not suggest a recommendation or endorsement by Fidelity. This information is not intended for distribution to or use by any person or entity in any jurisdiction or country where such distribution would or use would be contrary to local law or regulation. Persons accessing this information are required to inform themselves about and observe such restrictions. Third-party trademarks appearing herein are the property of their respective owners. All others are the property of FMR LLC. Copyright 2023 FMR LLC. All rights reserved. One zero. Four zero one five six.